You're listening to Kevin Stock Radio. Hey, it's Kevin, and I got some got something a little bit different in this podcast. Uh, so I just recently finished an article called Carbohydrates in the Carnivore Diet, and I've worked on it for months and months and months. And it turned out to be about 15, almost 15,000 words, which is like a, a small book. Uh, and so a lot of people asked if I could uh, record a podcast on it. And I most of these podcast episodes I've done have been based on articles I've uh, written, uh, but I usually just kind of talk on them extemporaneously. But today I'm going to kind of read this like an audiobook. I will probably, you know, diverge here and there. Uh, but for the most part, I'm just going to read this so you can enjoy this in your car or while you're working out or wherever you listen to podcasts if you can't read the article. Like I I'm I'm a reader myself, so I always recommend, you know, checking out the article. You can I have all the references there. Um uh, and so you don't have to take notes because all this is in a blog post. You can just go to kevinstock.io. Uh, if, you, if it's not the top one, you just search carbohydrates and the carnivore diet on the website and it'll pop up. But without further ado, let's just dive into this and here we go. So the title carbohydrates and the carnivore diet doesn't even make sense. Meat has virtually no carbohydrates. Nearly all carbs and sugars in our diet come from plant-based foods. But here I want to discuss what carbohydrates do have to do with the carnivore diet. So over the last few years, I've done a number of experiments within the framework of the carnivore diet. And I have another, uh, I have a blog post on this. It's called Carnivore Diet Experiments, where I talk about my previous carnivore diet experiments, which include uh, three months of a carnivore transition where I went through levels one, two, and three. Uh, I had a six month time period where I went ate just beef and water. Three months after that, uh, where I reintroduced various animal-based foods where I ate other meats and organs, seafoods and eggs. Uh, Then after that, I did six months of complete quote unquote nose to tail eating. Uh, After that, I did a six month muscle building protocol. After that, I did a three month fat loss protocol. All of these eating just animal source nutrition, meat-based foods, basically no carbohydrates, no fiber. Uh, and I've discussed the results of these findings in that blog post. So if you want to check that out, I recommend uh, just going onto the website to find those. Okay. But during this time period, I had not experimented with carbohydrates at all. In fact, I'd gone years without eating any plant-based foods, virtually zero carbohydrates, no fiber, not even the occasional sugar cheat, like just straight up uh, strict for a long time. Uh, and then for, and for the last several years on a daily basis, I've been asked about non-meat-based foods. And since I hadn't eaten any in years, I couldn't answer these questions from experience. So I was curious, what would happen if I ate a jar of honey after not eating carbohydrates for years? Would I feel terrible? Would cravings return? Or would my muscles fill out and my training skyrocket? I wondered what would happen if I ate blueberries and avocados after years of no fiber. Had my microbiome morphed? Would it be overwhelmed and unable to handle this fiber? Would I bloat, vomit, explode? I mean, what would happen if I ate a cheat meal or if I had an entire cheat day? Would ice cream kill me? Would curiosity kill the cat? Well, I conducted these experiments and luckily I survived to tell you about them here. Uh, They were enlightening. Uh, Some of the results I anticipated, 
Some definitely caught me by surprise, and we're going to discuss those here. Uh, but before I reveal the results of these experiments, I want to talk about carbohydrates. So for the purposes of this article, I'm going to ignore many of the things that come pre-packaged with plant-based carbohydrates like phytotoxins and anti-nutrients. For more on these, I highly recommend downloading The Health Dangers of a Plant-Based Diet. It's an ebook I wrote. You can grab it on the website, download it. It's totally free. Uh, in that, I go into much more detail about phytotoxins and anti-nutrients and basically the health dangers of a plant-based diet. All right, so what are carbohydrates? Now, without going into all the biochemistry, there are a few things to know about carbohydrates. One, we store carbohydrates as glycogen in our liver, which we, where we store about 100, 120 grams. Uh, and we also store it as glycogen in our muscles, where, you know, approximately 400 grams uh, of glycogen in our muscles. And you could think of the liver and the muscles as limited short-term, you know, gas tanks, which are energy tanks. When the gas tank is full, excess fuel, excess carbohydrates get stored as fat, which is fat is our long-term energy storage, okay? So second thing, carbohydrates are sugars. Ultimately, when we eat carbohydrates, they get broken down into glucose, fructose, or a combination of the two. And three, most of our dietary carbohydrates come from plants. Virtually none come from animal tissue. Okay, so let's look at a few paths of carbohydrates. Uh, carbohydrates okay so this this is titled path of the potato which is a glucose based carbohydrate uh, a potato is a heap of starch called amylose which gets broken down into glucose and taken into the blood the bloodstream then delivers this sugar to the liver uh, and it can go to feed cells directly as well at these destinations glucose can be used it can be converted for use or stored as glycogen or fat now the path of a pear fructose which is fructose uh, uh, fruit sugar uh, is a little bit different. It's not used to feed cells directly. It's taken up by the liver where it's broken down and then stored or used much like glucose. Uh, and then we have table sugar, sucrose. Uh, when someone mentions sugar, this is generally what they're talking about, sucrose. It's a molecule, molecule of fructose and glucose. Uh, most table sugar comes from sugar cane, uh, which is a tall grass with a big stem. Uh, we don't often think of sugar as a plant-based food, but it is. Uh, the process involves, you, you know, shredding the cane, adding water, and then crushing this mixture to extract the juice. Uh, the juice is then dried and, and into a granulated form, and then you get sugar. It's simply a processed and refined plant part. Uh, the sugar beet, which is a root, uh, can also be refined to give us sucrose as well. But the important thing here is almost all sugar in our diet comes from plants whether it's the glucose from a potato or the fructose from the pear or the sucrose from the sugar cane, sugar comes from plant-based foods. A quick note on this, uh, uh, an exception would be lactose, which is milk sugar, uh, but it wasn't until recently in terms of human evolution that we could even digest this molecule past childhood. I wrote a blog post on dairy where I go into kind of the back, the background of lactose, et cetera, uh, but it is milk sugar. It does provide carbohydrates, so that is an exception that I wanted to note here. Okay, let's talk about low-carb diets. Prior to the agricultural revolution, modern humans would have never eaten a significant amount of carbohydrates. A diet where 30% of calories came from carbs would be the upper end of even like the most aggressive estimates. So modern human physiology and biochemistry involved in and from this low-carbohydrate, low-glycemic, low-insulin environment. So the default diet of modern humans in the wild, it, it was a low carbohydrate diet. 
But it's not just humans that eat a low-carb diet in the wild. So let's talk about low-carb cows. Cows are ruminants. They, they graze on roughage, grasses, and shrubs. They eat a lot of cellulose. Humans, we, we can't use cellulose. We can't use fiber for any significant amount of energy, but cows can. Ruminants are foregut digesters, which means they use their rumen, which consists of multiple complex stomachs filled with bacteria, to ferment this fiber. The fermentation produces short-chain fatty acids, which make up the bulk of the cow's nutrition. So via this ruminal fermentation, cows are eating a diet that consists of about 70 to 80% fat, most of which is saturated fat, about 20 to 30% protein, and virtually zero carbohydrates. Uh, and so cows aren't unique in this. So let's just take uh, a look at gorillas, for example. A gorilla eats a lot of leaves, okay? Leaves are about 60% protein, 40% carbohydrate with just a minuscule amount of fat, like less than 5%. And while it would be tempting to equate, you know, eating leaves, like eating salads, uh, and a high-protein, low-fat diet with like a small gut, you know, trim waist, the opposite is closer to the truth. Uh, due to the gorilla's large gut, they're, they're called hindgut digesters, they can take all this fiber, which makes up about 75% of the leaves dry, dry weight, uh, and they can ferment it into short-chain fatty acids. So in reality, a gorilla that's eating you know, leaves all day, every day, they eat a diet that's about 20% protein, 10% carbohydrate, and about 70% fat, You know, again, nearly all of which is saturated fat. So gorillas and cows are not unique in their ability to turn this seemingly nutrient-poor plant-based food into high-energy fat. All herbivores use one or the other of these digestion methods. Now, what about uh, lions, for example? Lions, like humans, we can't use fiber as a, any significant means of an energy uh, source. But carnivores have a much simpler digestive system. Uh, and this isn't an issue because lions eat nutrient-rich herbivores, which provide the lion with a high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet. So the cow, the gorilla, the lion, they all eat a high-fat, moderate-protein, low-carb diet. And the ancestral human diet had macronutrient ratios very similar to these. Uh, and it wasn't until humans thought we could outsmart nature that this changed significantly. Now today, most humans eat a diet that is over 60% carbohydrates. The USDA even recommends up to 65% of your diet uh, be made up of carbohydrates. And in many areas of the world, this percentage is even higher. Like, and what happens is fat and protein get sacrificed. Protein it often drops below 15% of one's calories. And fat calories tend to come from sources that are easily oxidized, very inflammatory, and damaging. Uh, more on that in a, in a blog post I wrote, Health Dangers of Plant-Based Food. You can get in that, that uh, ebook I wrote, the plant, Health Dangers of Plant-Based Diet, goes into more of that as well. So... It's common to equate a plant-based diet with a healthy diet. However, 70% of our diet is already plant-based and thus carb-based. And I would argue that our health is spiraling in the wrong direction. Okay, So cows eat grass, gorillas eat leaves, lions eat antelope, and humans, we eat carbs. Uh, and so perhaps it isn't such a mystery why humans are the only chronically sick animal uh, besides those that we domesticate, of course. <laughs> Wild animals, they don't tend to get obese, they don't get diabetes, they don't get osteoporosis, arthritis, allergies, IBS, autoimmune diseases, heart disease, or cancer. But for humans and the animals we domesticate, these are commonplace. Over the millions of years of human evolution, we had little exposure to high-carb meals and no exposure to the super high-sugar diets that we have today. Yet, 
we wonder what is to blame for our downward spiraling health. Let's talk about essential nutrients. There are nutrients that are essential, certain vitamins, minerals, amino acids, and fatty acids that we have to get in our diet, but carbohydrates aren't one of them. Only a few cells in the body require any glucose at all, like red blood cells and certain cells of the central nervous system in the brain. Uh, and this small amount can easily be made in the body from proteins. About 80% of the central nervous system can use ketones, which leaves less than 30 grams of glucose per day that is actually needed by the brain, which can easily be obtained via gluconeogenesis. Uh, the one macronutrient that humans, we don't need to eat, and it's the one that we eat in the greatest abundance. So let's talk about the high carb plant-based diet of the world. So if we look at what the world eats, we can see carbohydrates dominate. But perhaps surprisingly, there are really four main foods that contribute to the majority of carbohydrate consumption. Wheat, corn, rice, and sugar. So grains, wheat, corn, and rice, these are grains. Uh, we, we think of these as ancient foods, daily staples since the beginning of human existence. But if you put all of human, the, the genus human, homo, uh, onto a 24-hour clock, if you put our whole existence on a 24-hour clock, grains didn't become any significant part of the human diet until five minutes ago. So for 23 hours and 55 minutes, humans didn't eat grains. Uh, besides requiring agricultural techniques to consume in any meaningful way, grains are laced with plant toxins and anti-nutrients to prevent herbivores and humans from eating the plant's offspring. And the offspring are the grains are the seeds of grasses. So these are the offspring. But five minutes ago, in terms of our human evolution, we took these plant seeds and we made them a very significant part of the human diet by artificially breeding them and selecting them for size and abundance. Things get worse. Uh, in the last second, back to our ev human evolutionary clock, in the last second, the industrial revolution, uh, we, be, we began refining these, uh, thereby concentrating carbohydrates and their prepackaged toxins in many cases. Then, in the very last split second, we altered these even further. We began genetically modifying, modifying them. Now about 90% of major crops are genetically modified organisms. So we've engineered new tra traits into plants that wouldn't otherwise naturally occur. We've engineered higher lectin loads to deter insects. We began spraying them with pesticides and in insecticides and fungicides. Uh, we've added preservatives so we can store and ship these foods around the world. And all of these changes came with a heavy price. Let's consider wheat and, and let's talk about gluten. So gluten is an energy storage protein. It's not a carbohydrate, but it comes packaged in wheat, which is a carbohydrate-based food. Uh, and it's a good example of how we have fundamentally changed plant-based foods into artificial, synthetic, dangerous foods. So when some people eat gluten, it triggers an immediate severe attack on the lining of the small intestines. It's called celiac disease. You may have heard of it. Now, celiac disease dramatically increased in the United States in the 60s and the 70s. Uh, this is about the same time that genetic breeding, breeding uh, further transformed wheat. You know, the old four and a half foot amber waves of grain, well, they turned into two foot semi-dwarf uh, uh, semi dwarf wheat. You know, what this resulted in, you know, yields went up, profits went up, uh, and so did the gluten concentration. And it and so this gluten concentration, it wasn't only more abundant, but the gluten was fundamentally different. Like the molecular structure of gluten was chemically altered. Uh, so many people think celiacs is just a genetic condition and gluten doesn't cause problems with people who don't have this condition. 
but there's been particularly one, uh, you know, dynamite, but several studies uh, that have shown that the risk of developing celiac disease is connected directly to the amount of gluten children consume. And of course, you know, if you want to see the references of this, just check out the, uh, the article on my website where I reference all this. Uh, so the ability to tolerate gluten is now it's commonly seen as on a spectrum from those who have the ability to tolerate in certain quantities to those who simply just can't tolerate even the smallest doses. Uh, we know that our digestive tract can't handle wheat protein proteins. They're called prolamins uh, like gluten and other lectins very well. Uh, genetically modified wheat and altered proteins are like foreign invaders to the body. They cause damage to the gut quote-unquote leaky gut uh, that can cause widespread inflammation, autoimmune disorders, and disease. Uh, but it's not just wheat that we've transformed. Let's consider our next major carb-based food, corn. Now, with corn, there's a big difference between eating an organic ear of corn versus high-fructose corn syrup extracted from genetically modified corn. Okay. That said, an ear of corn is quite unnatural itself. Because originally corn was small, about the size of your little finger. Uh, the seeds of this of the, of the wild grass would easily fall off and disperse. But today we've engineered it to give us massive ears of corn. You know, the, the seeds cling to the cob so tightly uh, that corn can't even exist on its own in the wild. So although an ear of corn is quite unnatural today, it's not even close to the other versions of corn that make up so much of our diets. Today, most of us eat the version of corn that results from steeping it, taking the starch, refining the syrup, and further processing it to give us high fructose corn syrup. You know, this is the version of corn that we eat in massive, massive quantities. So corn is a good example of what we tend to do with many plant-based foods. In the wild, the plant part is relatively scarce, small, and low in carbohydrates. You know, it would be difficult to eat in any large quantities, but... We selectively breed it, genetically modify it, and change these natural plants into unnatural variations, you know, for bigger versions, sweeter versions, higher yield versions. Uh, I mean, just look at some of the things that we use corn for. We use corn starch uh, made from the endosperm, and we use it as a thickening agent. It's also the main ingredient in biodegradable plastic. Uh, we squeeze the germ of corn to get oil, which we fry our food in. It, get, it gets further hydrogenated to make margarine. We use corn to make cereals, snack foods, salad dressings, soft drink sweeteners, gum, peanut butter, flour products. I mean, the list goes on and on. Uh, but when we eat these end products, the fact that we are eating uh, a high-carb plant-based food really becomes obscured. You know, for somehow we get a disconnect that the fact that we're actually eating corn. Now let's talk about rice. So rice, like corn and wheat, it's a seed of a grass. Uh, and it's a worldwide staple food. And like all seeds, uh, you know, grains, nuts, legumes, it comes with potential problems. Remember, grains are the seeds of grasses. Seeds are vital for the survival and success of a plant species. And because seeds are so important, plants take extra measures to ensure they get protected, spread, and have the best chance of growing and producing their own seeds. So ensuring the offspring's survival and success is of paramount importance to the plant and so they lace them with phytochemicals to deter predators from eating them and contrary to popular belief the nutrition in seeds is intended for the growing plant not for human health and nutrition and when we steal this nutrition for ourselves it comes with consequences so today these three carb-based foods wheat corn and rice it makes about half of the world's food pretty staggering now let's switch to the next major you know 
carb source that's really causing that's really wreaking havoc and that's sugar so with grains we took plants and processed them into our daily staple foods and we did the same thing with sugar sugar as we know it is even newer than these grains uh, when refined sugar when refined white sugar first came to europe it was very expensive you know it was a luxury reserve for their wealthy and it wasn't until the 1900s after industrial processing and extraction were developed that sugar became any significant part of our diet now of course it's cheap and wildly abundant it makes up over 25 percent of our diet by weight sugarcane is the world's largest crop we produce 175 million tons of sugar a year the average american eats over 130 pounds of sugar a year and because this is audio i can't give you the visual but on the blog post uh i have a picture of what 130 pounds of sugar looks like in a wheelbarrow it's staggering uh and really our bodies just aren't designed to handle this uh you know in the past maybe still is uh, it's common to equate sugar with empty calories but you know when we look under the hood we see it's more dangerous than just empty calories uh so metabolic derangement this is kind of what i want to talk about here with every carb loaded meal we create a metabolic panic we stress the pancreas to unload insulin to reestablish homeostatic blood sugar now the insulin dump immediately halts fat burning that's what insulin does it drops our blood sugar and urges hormones to tell the brain to eat more we feel this as a strong craving for more sugar since fat burning is largely turned off thanks to the insulin the cravings can feel like a panic due to the low blood sugar uh, because we can't use our fat energy reserves to supply the energy we need so with this drop in blood sugar our energy drops we get tired our brains get foggy and we get quote unquote hangry for more sugar you know willpower gives way we reach for more sugar and we feel the reward from the brain reinforcing this behavior what results is binging cravings and addiction uh, so in this vicious vicious sugar cycle we're basically we're always hungry and we're always storing more fat you know we disrupt our hormonal signaling and we lose the ability to tap the abundant energy stored in our fat cells but besides leading to chronic hunger and fat gain this massively unnatural carbohydrate load and blood sugar roller coaster wreaks havoc on human health metabolic hormones become dysregulated the high blood sugar levels disrupt cellular water balance it impairs our immune system it damages our vision kidneys and even nerves obesity cardiovascular disease cancer and dementia all become increasingly common stepwise with ever-increasing consumption of carbohydrates especially sugar now the human body has about one teaspoon that's a teaspoon of glucose in all the blood only a few cells in the body require any glucose whatsoever all of which can be made from protein with, with no problem at all there is no essential carbohydrate no need to eat any sugar at all yet we are eating it literally by the wheelbarrow wheel load so i want to talk about addiction because i alluded to it there in this prior uh paragraph and a major problem with carbs is that they are addicting and this is controversial this is there's controversy around this but like if you don't believe me just ask someone to give up sugar give ask them to give up carbs for a month you'll get all the signs first denial then if they accept your challenge they'll get uncontrollable cravings have withdrawal symptoms and exhibit the signs of physical dependence then it's all but certain they're going to engage in isolating behavior to sneak a dopamine hit once relapsed they will go back to the to denying that it's even a problem rinse and repeat that's the, that's the addiction cycle right there um, sugar's effect on the brain is staggering it causes neurochemical changes in the brain similar to other addictive drugs it activates the same regions of pleasure as cocaine um, 
And a big problem is that we develop tolerance to the sugar reward cycle, and we need more and more to uh, continue to derive pleasure from it. So sugar stimulates the neurotransmitter dopamine, which drives the reward center in the brain. But dopamine also downregulates its own receptor, which is what generates the reward signal. So what this means is the next time around, you're going to need more sugar to generate more dopamine to generate less reward and so on until you're consuming a whole lot of sugar and getting almost no reward for it. And this is what's known as tolerance. Uh, and as one's tolerance increases to sugar, uh, so does the addiction. So the next thing I want to touch on here is toxicity, because uh, I'm, I'm often asked, is sugar toxic? And so toxicity is the degree to which a substance can cause harm. You have acute toxicity from things that, you know, a single exposure, and then you can have chronic toxicity from exposure over an extended period of time. Now, while death from a sugar binge, which would be acute toxicity, you know, it's quite rare, eating sugar over a long enough period of time results in chronic toxicity in the form of metabolic diseases like heart disease, cancers, and dementia. Uh, but, you know, that aside, I think is sugar toxic is the wrong question. I think a better question might be is, you know, what dose of sugar can be tolerated to avoid chronic toxicity? And it's really, it's not an easy question is some people get metabolically deranged from even modest doses of sugar, while others eating the same amount can appear to avoid adverse effects. Genetics, exercise, and other diet aspects all play a role. Uh, but to put this sugar toxicity into perspective, I like to consider and relate it to smoking. Uh, because I think smoking is one of the worst things you can do for your health. But only one in six smokers die of lung cancer. And this is not to say that it doesn't exacerbate other diseases and conditions, because it absolutely does. But the impact of chronic sugar exposure is likely more significant than that of tobacco, seeing that the top causes of death all stem from metabolic disease. Like, can you imagine if tobacco was added to 75% of our foods? That's what we do with sugar. And while sugar is an easy target, it's easy to forget that all carbohydrates ultimately get broken down into sugar, and thus we can see toxicity not with just sugar, but with carbohydrates in general. So let's talk about carbohydrates and disease, because I'm sure you've heard the statistics. Most people are overweight or, or obese now. On average, Americans carry about 30 pounds of more fat than we did in the 60s. A third of kids are overweight or obese. Uh, if you don't have diabetes or if you don't have high blood pressure, guess what? You're in the minority. The leading causes of death are all chronic diseases of modern civilization. And this downward health spiral is speeding up despite medical, scientific, and research advancements. Uh, eating meat and animal fat has also seen a downward trend during this time, about a 20% decline since the 70s. Uh, what's interesting is we didn't just fill in this 20% of lost calories from meat with nothing. We replaced it with non-meat-based foods. And we not only replaced these calories, but we piled on an extra 500 plus calories on top of it. So since the 70s, we're actually eating less meat, but we're eating more calories, which means we're eating a whole lot more plant-based foods, especially in the form of refined carbohydrates. And of course, we are getting fatter and sicker. So let's talk a little bit more about metabolic derangement. Because metabolic dysregulation, like metabolic syndrome, uh, it's at the intersection of all our major degenerative conditions, and carbohydrates play a leading role in this problem. Uh, because it's, it's really, contrary to what you may have heard, it's not just how much you eat. Not all calories are created equal with, with regard to their impact on health. Calories from fat versus calories from protein versus calories from carbs affect the body in different ways. Of course they do. 
So diet, apart from just calories, has a substantial impact on hormones and metabolism that influences everything from hunger to energy utilization and storage. The type of calories consumed influence calories burned, how those calories are stored, and how hungry one is for more calories. So for example, this is called the carbohydrate insulin model, and it describes a vicious cycle where carbohydrates lead to overeating, which leads to fat gain, which leads to more overeating. This happens because chronically elevated insulin makes fat cells preferentially store energy. And by hoarding energy, fat cells don't leave enough energy for the rest of the body. You couple this with high carbohydrate foods and low nutrient density with low nutrient density, and you get a situation where the body is starving for nutrition, yet there's an excess of energy being stored as fat. So carbohydrates, especially added sugars, are to blame as they are directly linked with metabolic disease. The more carbs we eat, the higher the risk for metabolic syndrome. So let's specifically talk about cardiovascular disease and carbohydrates. Cardiovascular disease is the number one killer worldwide. Statistically speaking, that is what you are most likely to die from. Uh, but most people don't link carbohydrates and cardiovascular disease. Instead, you know, we've been trained and conditioned to associate saturated fat and cholesterol as the culprits for clog clogging arteries. Uh, but according to the research, I think this is misguided. There's a 2019 meta-analysis that shows carbohydrates are the likely cause of heart disease. And the strength of the, of the conclusions in the study meet Hill criteria, which suggest causation. Uh, metabolic disease is the number one predictor of cardiovascular disease. There's a study done in 2011 that shows hyperinsulinemia as a top predictor of heart attacks. Two out of three heart attack victims have metabolic syndrome. High blood pressure is linked with high carbohydrate consum consumption. There's a 2016 meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials that, that suggest restricting carbohydrates and eating more animal pro protein is the way to improve your blood pressure. More sugar is associated with higher blood pressure and cardiovascular mortality. Then, uh, this year, 2019, uh, there is a fantastic look at carbohydrates being linked to heart disease across 42 European countries. Uh, and it showed carbohydrates, not fat, as the link. Uh, there's also uh, a study looking at low-carb diets and CAC scores uh, that show animal-based low-carb diets don't cause cardiovascular disease. We have higher total mortality associated with higher carbohydrate intake. A study that included 18 countries over 130,000 people showed Fat had zero association with heart disease. It also showed that the more animal protein one consumed, the lower the death rates. Uh, there's a study called the Nurses Health Study, which included nearly 100,000 women. It showed that women who drank more than two servings of sweetened drinks per day had a 40% higher risk of heart attack uh, and death from cardiovascular disease. And risk of cardiovascular disease mortality increases exponentially with increasing percentages of calories from added sugar. So sugar is so dangerous, in fact, that the World Health Organization lowered its quote-unquote target recommendations for added sugars from 10% to 5%, which is less than a can of soda. Uh, but Americans still consume about 15% of calories from added sugar, uh, drinking a gallon of soda a week, which just blows my mind. Uh, and this doesn't include natural sugars either, uh, or other carbohydrates that ultimately get turned into sugar. So if you're not familiar, metabolic syndrome is classified by having three or more uh, of conditions, which I'll list here. All of these conditions are exacerbated with increasing carbohydrate consumption. Obesity, high triglycerides, low HDL, high blood pressure, high blood sugar, and insulin resistance. So 
Besides being a top predictor of cardiovascular disease and death, metabolic syndrome increases the risk of many, most of our chronic diseases, including cancer and dementia. So as mentioned in the research that I kind of just listed to you there, uh, one of the best ways to improve metabolic syndrome is simply to reduce carbohydrate consumption. All right, let's talk about cancer a little bit. because the chances are that if you're able to listen to this, me speaking this right now, and if cardiovascular disease doesn't kill you, then cancer is the next most likely cause of death. Most people do not associate metabolic disease with cancer, but the research suggests that we should. Cancer cells need a lot of glucose, uh, much more than healthy cells, because they rely on anaerobic glycolysis to fuel their rapid growth. So the more glucose in the blood, the more likely cancer cells can proliferate. Cancer cells also thrive in high insulin environments uh, as insulin is a growth hormone that helps cancer cells grow. With insulin resistance, the body tends to have higher insulin and higher blood sugar levels, which sets the stage for cancer cells to thrive. Um, And research has linked elevated insulin with cancer risk. Uh, There's a study done in 2014 that showed when fasting insulin was above 6.1, there was a 250% increased likelihood to have prostate cancer than when insulin was below 2.75. Another study showed similar results. When fasting insulin was above 10, it increased the risk for cancer mortality by over 200%. So evidence suggests that carbohydrates play a significant role in cancer. We see increased processed food consumption increases cancer risk. Uh, About one in eight women in the United States will get breast cancer. But lifelong vegetarians have an increased risk and diets high in carbs Uh, greatly increase the risk of breast cancer. Colon cancer is linked with high-carbohydrate diets, more so than the weaker association the World Health Organization used to declare red meat as a risk risk factor for colon cancer. Uh, And there's even mechanistic data for the role of high-fructose corn syrup in the causation of colon cancer. And we know, uh, I guess, let's talk a little bit about the ketogenic diets in cancer. So it's really, it, it probably shouldn't come as a surprise that a carb-restricted ketogenic-style diet is being used as an adjunct therapy to cancer treatment. So there's this doctor, his name is Dr. Seyfried, uh, has done pioneering work in this area. His research has shown that when animals with brain tumors are put on a ketogenic diet, they exhibit markedly decreased tumor growth rates. Uh, he's found that when he improves an animal's, it's quote-unquote called a glucose ketone index, for just two weeks, the animal animal's tumor weights tend to decrease about 90% with a, with a 5x increase in survival rate. Now, these studies are, have not just been uh, done in animals. Like, we have numerous case studies in humans as well, uh, two that I'll mention here. There's this one in 1995 where there was these two young patients that had high-grade uh, Bramer tumors who were unresponsive to standard treatment, uh, and basically they were expected to die. They were put on a ketogenic diet as a last resort experimental therapy. Guess what? Both patients experienced long-term tumor management without the need for further treatment. In 2010, there's this case study of this woman who suffered from a high-grade astrocytoma, which is a brain cancer. And with standard treatment plus a ketogenic diet, the tumor was eradicated. But only when she suspended the ketogenic diet did the tumor return. So because of countless stories like these, as well as the data, which strongly suge- suggests that, you know, metabolic alteration is, can be a highly effective adjunctive therapy to the current standard of care for certain tumor types, carb restriction in some cancer patients is becoming increasingly common. I just hope that we start moving in the direction where we don't wait until cancers appear to start lowering carbohydrate uh, intake. So I want to talk about dementia as well. Uh, kind of because I want to talk about heart disease, cancer, and dementia. These kind of are the three big scares of modern society. Uh, 
And I remember when I first came across Dr. Uh, 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 this doctor uh, who is now a well-known neurologist, and he said something that I couldn't forget. Uh, and he said carbohydrates are the cause of almost every modern neurologic malady. And his stance are that carbs are the problem underlying everything from dementia to depression. Uh, I'll quote him here. Inflammation is the cornerstone of Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis. All of the neurodegenerative diseases are really predicated on inflammation. It's already there. It's in the peer-reviewed literature. It's been there for decades. Uh, so what he does is he connects chronic carbohydrate consumption with chronic inflammation. So let's talk a little bit about inflammation. Inflammation is constant low-level immune system activation, uh, and it underlies most of our non-communicable diseases, not just neurologic. Okay, Evidence suggests uh, that conditions like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, MS, depression, as well as cancers, arthritis, asthma, gout, diabetes, many others, uh, are fueled by insidious long-term inflammation. In effect, the immune system's inflammatory response slowly kills us. Uh, but inflammation is a response, right? The question is, what is the stimulus? What's causing what a need for a response? Uh, and I, I pose the question, could it be something that we do, you know, most people do three plus times a day? Could eating or rather what we are eating be slowly killing us? Because we know spikes in blood sugar promote oxidation and inflammation. What happens is cells get flooded with sugar and the chemical pathways to process glucose get overloaded. So overwhelming this metabolic pathway causes free radical byproducts, which damage cells from the inside out. And the damage signals inflammation by calling things like cytokine, by, so sorry, the damage signals inflammation because it calls uh, cytokines like interleukin-6 and TNF-alpha uh, to the scene as kind of like first responders. So meal after meal, day after day, year after year, chronic inflammation damages tissues and organs uh, and disease ma manifests in the brain and the body. So Dr. Lustig, who's an endocrinologist, like he agrees, but he takes it a step further saying, carbohydrates are the cornerstone of all our major degenerative conditions. Uh, that's quite a statement. Uh, but really, I think what these doctors are arguing is that chronic diseases stem from metabolic dysfunction. That's what I think what the, like, at the root of what they're saying is. Uh, and so there's this term, it's called glucose hypometabolism, and it's used to describe how sugar metabolism basically gets broken. And we know Alzheimer's disease, it's, it's preceded by decades of worsening glucose metabolism. About 80% of sufferers are insulin resistant, and it's believed most cases could be totally prevented. Okay, there's research published in New England Journal of Medicine that concluded higher glucose levels may be a risk factor for dementia, even among people without diabetes. So whether someone is technically diabetic or not, if they have high blood sugar, uh, they have a faster rate of cognitive decline than those with normal blood sugar. And the evidence, I think, points to insulin resistance, uh, you know, metabolic, syndro metabolic sy syndrome of the brain being the driving force behind dementia. High carbohydrate diets increase the risk of cognitive impairment and, and dementia. I cite numerous studies here. A low-carb diet is, is neuroprotective. I cite numerous studies here. Uh, but I think just focusing on blood sugar is short-sighted, okay? We know that people who have diabetes and are treated with insulin are more likely to get Alzheimer's than diabetics not treated with insulin, which suggests elevated insulin, you know, hyperinsulinemia, uh, plays a role in developing of Alzheimer's disease. Again, it's the high blood sugar, high insulin, and overall metabolic derangement that is wreaking havoc. And we see this evidence in studies that show how obesity and type 2 diabetes are associated with lower cognitive performance, cognitive decline, and dementia. Again, studies galore cited here. Uh, and, and I think we would be amiss if I didn't talk about mental health here because the impact of carbs on the brain 
aren't limited to just its later life disease manifestation. Carbs negatively affect the brain at all ages and in numerous waves. Uh, really, mental health is a modern-day epidemic. 20% of Americans suffer from a mental disorder in a given year. Four of the 10 leading causes of disability are mental illness. 20% of doctor's appointments are related to anxiety disorders. One in five young people suffer from a mental health problem. Suicide is the second leading cause of death for uh, between the ages of 10 and 34. The causes of mental health problems are thought to be multifactorial, yet are largely unknown. Biologic and physiologic changes like certain level, like uh, low levels of certain neurotransmitters like serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine are commonly seen. You know, there are genetic associations, there are environmental and societal impacts and influences. But what often gets left out is diet's potential impact on men mental health. Psychologists and psychiatrists have long failed to appreciate the impact that food can have on, on their patients. And, you know, luckily some researchers hope to remedy this and they looked at grains, like I talked about, the world's most abundant food to see how grains affected mental health. And they found three main things. One, grains can increase gut permeability, like I talked about, which can result in autoimmune, disease, autoimmune disorders that uh, negatively affect the brain. Two, they release opioid-like compo compounds capable of causing mental derangement. Three, a grain-free diet can improve and even cure mental health disorders. So it's early, but we're finally getting to a point where low-carb diets are being used to treat psychotic symptoms. So to wrap, kind of wrap up this carbohydrates and disease section, really the list goes on and on and on. I wanted to talk about the biggest killers uh, of uh, you know, uh, cardiovascular disease, dementia, uh, and cancers, uh, but really the list goes on and on and on and on. Uh, like. Let's mention autoimmune disorders briefly because uh, carbs, especially grains, we know promote intestinal permeability that can lead to that can lead to autoimmune disease. Autoimmunity is really a disorder of our time. It's estimated that 50 million Americans suffer from one, making it more common than cancer or cardiovascular disease. And the frequency of diagnosis is increasing. You know, while it's still largely a mystery, even to immunologists, why the body turns on itself and attacks its own cells and tissues. I'd argue that our plant-based, carb-based diet play a significant role. Uh, we know, you know, I particularly know as a dentist, sugar fosters tooth decay and gum disease. Dental decay is the number one chronic disease of children. Nine out of 10 adults have some degree of, of tooth decay. Uh, and just because we've culturally normalized tooth decay doesn't mean it's a normal process. Imagine if your doctor told you bacteria was feeding on all the carbs you were eating and enabling them to eat holes in the bones in your arms and legs, right? You'd probably stop eating carbs. Uh, dental decay, like other chronic diseases, is preventable because it requires a carbohydrate substrate. If you remove the carbs, you're going to prevent the decay. Now, the list of ailments associated with high-carb di high diets goes on and on. Uh, uh, you know, f your, your, your fat profile gets totally thrown off. Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease uh, becomes commonplace. Rheumatoid arthritis, macular degeneration, you know, on and on and on. Uh, but if that's not enough reason to consider cutting back on carbs, you know, there's research that shows sugar even makes you look older. Uh, and it's not really surprising because it's kind of backed up by science with advanced glycation end products. So sugars directly damage tissues through glycation. Uh, when a molecule, molecule gets glycated, these AGEs can cross-link with other molecules, creating a cascade of damage. And this damage, it doesn't only age you, which it does, uh, it's also implicit in another, you know, a number of health problems, including diabetes, hypertension, vascular damage, and dementia. You know, it's all interconnected. So 
Carbs can increase your likelihood of death from the three big killers, you know, cardiovascular disease, cancer, and dementia. Uh, and they can wreak havoc on your health throughout life, you know, via mental health disorders and physical ailments like autoimmunity, obesity, caries, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The research even shows that, you know, carbs make you unhappy. Uh, so as I was working on this article, uh, a question kept going through my head. And it's one that I kind of knew the answer to, but I wanted to uh, really, you know, spell it out. And I wondered, how do we let this happen? And really, history is telling. So, really, there's two major changes that I want to talk about here, okay? Uh, the first major change in carbohydrate consumption happened so long ago that it largely goes unnoticed. Uh, Pre-agricultural nutrition, that of hunter-gatherers, consisted of meat and fish with the occasional and opportunistic consumption of some plant-based products like seasonal fruits or tubers and nuts. Carbohydrate intake was minuscule. Under 15% would have been the norm, not the exception. So with the agricultural revolution, you know, roughly 10, 12,000 years ago, there was a switch to cereals in Europe, rice in Asia, corn in the Mesoamerica, and potatoes in South America. And this dietary change caused a noticeable rise in tooth decay, but a more insidious decline in overall health. Then the second major change is marked by, you know, the mass production and consumption of refined carbohydrates and sugars, uh, which kind of which which is highlighted highlighted by the industrial revolution. So before sugar be became a low-cost commodity, like overweight and obesity, uh, that was a privilege of the aristocracy. The, you know, this privilege spread to the rest of the people in England first, uh, once they could massive importation of ever cheaper sugar during the 18th century. Uh, and England became the first country in which obesity became endemic throughout larger segments of the population. And really the second major change, this industrial revolution and refining of carbs, uh, I, I, I want to break it down into three subsections and I call it, I want to call it the, the three sugar waves. Okay. So the first sugar wave started in England, like I was just talking about, and it spread quickly through the second half of the 19th century with the boom of the sugar beet industry. So sugar then infiltrated and morphed foods into new versions. Like we saw the rise of jams and candies and chocolates, you know, beverages like tea and coffee became sweet tea and sweetened coffee. And during this time, we saw an astronomical increase in sugar consumption compared to the minuscule amounts of sugar that was consumed just one generation prior. But really, this was nothing compared to the next two sugar waves. So the second wave hit after the Great Great Depression in the 30s, 1930s, when fruit juice, when the fruit juice and cereal industry took off. And by the 1960s, you know, thanks to phenomenal marketing and the addictive properties of sugar, breakfast foods turned into desserts. And the catastrophic impact of this cultural normalization of eating junk to start every day, I think is difficult to put into words. And then we had the third sugar wave hit in the 70s. And this is the time we saw the confluence of the fat is bad movement, the introduction of high fructose corn syrup, and industry motives aligned with profits and not consumer health. So let's start by talking a little bit about high fructose corn syrup. I know I touched on it, but uh, it warrants going into more detail. Uh, so refined white sugar is bad, but in 1956 is when we made sugar even more dangerous with the discovery of high fructose corn syrup, uh, which is even sweeter and you know cheaper than refined white sugar. And then by the 70s and 80s, I mean, high fructose corn syrup infiltrated our diets you know, from every corner. It was loaded into soft drinks and juices, snacks and desserts, syrups and salad dressings, you name it. 
so fructose, which is fruit sugar, fruit sugar uh, quote unquote, that's what it, we, people refer to it as. It has to be processed by the liver, like I mentioned uh, back in the in the pear, the path of the pear, uh, and it, and you know it has to be de- detoxified, so to speak. And it's not unlike alcohol, alcoholism, where chronic high fructose corn syrup uh, consumption bombards the liver with a toxin in excess, and this can fatten and damage the liver. In fact, it's a primary player in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Uh, so with this abuse, the liver eventually starts ignoring insulin, uh, which thereby impairs its ability to process glucose. Again, blood glucose builds up, the pancreas pumps more insulin, fat accumulates, appetite gets dysregulated, and hormonal systems dysfunction. Okay, Glycation is especially dang- dangerous with fructose. Uh, it can glycate at 7 to 10 times the rate of glucose. Uh, and so for diabetics who already have high blood sugar, this is like a recipe for accelerated aging and vascular damage. So in addition, there's some evidence that too much fructose, like in the quantities you get when you chug a you know, soda, uh, can induce unique problems. So the liver has to use ATP to convert fructose. And after tons of conversions, it leaves an excess of the byproduct, which is ADP, hanging around. And so when we have all this ADP hanging around, uh, it, it gets converted into uric acid and sent to the kidneys for removal. And there's some evidence that this can trigger gout, okay? So that's the link between fructose and gout. Uh, I think also noteworthy is there's this a genetic disease, quote-unquote disease, <laughs> called hereditary fructose intolerance. Uh, and people that have this, quote-unquote, disease, uh, they get seizures when, you know, the, their first sip of fruit juice, they get seizures. So they can't eat fructose at all throughout their entire lives. And guess what? They are among the healthiest people in existence. Okay, so by the end of the third sugar wave, what we saw is grocery store aisles are just littered with low-fat products. uh, And instead of the fat, you know, we loaded them with sugar. Uh, And since the 1970s, the incidence of diabetes has more than tripled. Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is the buildup of extra fat in the liver cells, it wasn't even a known diagnostic problem until this time. Guess what? Now one in three U.S. adults have it. <laughs> so, and guess, and worse, doctors are now treating the first generation of kids with fatty livers. So, you know, how did this happen? Let's, let's ask that question again, because the next thing I want to talk about is industry. Because as early as the 1950s, the sugar industry knew that if Americans adopted low-fat diets, the per capita consumption of sucrose would increase by more than a third. And they knew that when they added sugar to processed foods, you know, we buy more of them. So the sugar industry went on to pay scientists to downplay the link between sugar and heart disease and instead to pin saturated fat as a scapegoat. Coca-Cola, renowned for providing millions of dollars to fund research that would, that would conclude that sugary drinks didn't uh, weren't linked with obesity. Uh, and you know what? For the next 50 years, sugar-sponsored research heavily manipulated science to protect its commercial entry, interest, to influence regulations, and really to shape public opinion. And we still feel this influence today with our current dietary recommendations. And, I mean, it is not until recently, uh, especially there's this group of researchers who did a detailed review of 60 studies between 2001 and 2016, and it looked at whether sugary drinks contributed to obesity or diabetes. Guess what? Half of the studies during this time found no link. They were all funded by the sugar industry. The other half did not find a link. These were independently funded. I mean, that's not a coincidence, obviously, right? 
uh, and it's not just sugar industry. Uh, there's a Dr. Mark Hegstead. He was a beneficiary of the sugar industry. He went on to become the head of nutrition at the United States Department of Agriculture, where he helped shape the federal diet, government's dietary recommendations. Uh, the sugar industry made it into Harvard too. Dr. Frederick Stare, uh, he became the chairman of Har- Har- Harvard's nutrition department. And really, I mean, it has taken decades to bring this corruption to light. Uh, most most of people still don't even realize this. So, it, you know, we could argue that it still has been brought to light. Uh, and I would argue that perhaps too late, more than 75% of our food has added sugar. It has infiltrated literally every food category. Uh, so what happened? The food industry created a need for sugar with its palatability, addictability, and price. And by manipulating research and recommendations, they also manipulated our beliefs about food. Uh, which brings us, which I think we need to talk about the fat is bad movement. Uh, because the sugar industry needed a scapegoat for the downward health trends and fat took the fall. Uh, you may have heard of Dr. Ansel Keys. In 1953, he manipulated some data to conclude that animal fats were responsible for the dramatic rise in heart disease. And I'd argue his published paper is one of the deadliest studies ever done because he published this research that showed six countries with high animal fat intake and their associated higher risk of death from heart disease. Uh, and this was the catalyst to the low-fat, high-carb recommendations of the last century. And it's one of the biggest contributors to the skyrocketing epidemics of obesity, diabetes, and heart disease. Because fat, and in particular meat, became bad. Grains became, quote-unquote, healthy carbs. Vegetable oils became, quote-unquote, healthy fats. And sugar was considered, you know, this innocuous empty calories. You know, harmless, but, uh, you know, just some empty calories. But really, what's get lo- what, what got lost in this story is that Keys... Uh, Dr. Keyes excluded 22 other countries from the study that didn't support his hypothesis. So first, his conclusions were based on epidemiology, which are just basically observational studies, which are tremendously limited in many ways, but especially limited when you cherry pick the data. Uh, So let's just look at a little bit uh, of what the research had to say has to say like is fat really to blame because if we look at food consumption data we see a totally different picture for example in england animal fat consumption was stable between 1920 and 1970 but heart attacks increased 10x in switzerland after world war ii the death rate from heart disease decreased yet the intake of animal fat increased by 20 percent. that's curious In Yemen, the people who ate mainly animal fats had little heart disease and diabetes, while in Israel, where they ate margarine and vegetable oils, they had the highest levels of both. In Georgia, in the former Soviet Soviet Union, those who ate the most fatty meat, they lived the longest. In the U.S., animal fat consumption fell throughout the 20th century while heart disease increased. I mean, using USDA consumption data uh, compared to a century ago, Americans eat less saturated fat and less red meat but more chicken, I should note that. Uh, and we eat a whole lot more carbs in the form of grains and sugars. And the result, our, our health is getting worse and worse, right? Now, fat has had a slow redemption, uh, and it's taken a long time to make this comeback. Uh, in 1998, there's a study that looked at the effects of fats and cardiovascular disease and found that Key's conclusions just totally failed. And there was, there was no evidence to link saturated fat to heart disease. In 2010, uh, the search continued to justify the fat is bad doctrine of the previous decades, but a massive study published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, uh, which included you know almost a half a million people, 350,000 plus people, concluded dietary intake of saturated fat does not increase the risk of cardiovascular disease or coronary artery disease. Uh, and another study that year, nearly 60,000 people arrived at the same conclusion 
But instead, they found an inverse relationship with stroke, meaning the more fat someone consumed, the less likely they were to suffer a stroke. Uh, even more recently, Dr. Cowdery, uh, uh, in 2014, he led this study uh, that was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine and found no evidence that eating saturated fat increased heart attacks or other cardiac ev- events. Uh, he's quoted as saying, it's not saturated fat that we should worry about. Uh, instead, the research shows that replacing saturated fats with vegetable oils increases the likelihood of death and heart disease by 62 and 70% respectively. So slowly but surely, uh, fat is getting redeemed and carbs are getting expo- exposed, but I still think we got a long way to go. So I want to mention one last thing on low carb diets, because to me, <laughs> it seems like they're the original new thing, right? Because uh, we know the human ancestral diet pre-agriculture was a low-carb diet. I, I, almost no one can argue that. Uh, although agricultural transformed diets across the globe, you know, there are societies that maintained ancestral meat-based diets. Uh, and by and large, they demonstrate superior health. They lack the chronic diseases that plague modern life. And if you want to uh, study up more on this, I wrote an article on evidence of a meat-based diet. I, I maybe even have a podcast episode on it uh, that goes into more detail about these uh, ancestral diets and a meat-based diet and evidence for a meat-based diet. So low-carb diets have received recent publicity and popularity. I think, uh, you know, Atkins diet was one of the catalysts in the ninth, uh, in the 20th century, uh, and it was extremely popular. Uh, the ketogenic diet has become a household name, and now the carnivore diet is starting to take off. Uh, but really, these low-carb diets, you know, they're a new thing in terms of publicity and popularity, but they're not a new thing. Uh, as we've discussed, it was the default diet of our, of our ancestors. I mean, high-carb diets in the context of human diets over time, those are the new kids on the block, uh, and the new kids have been a big-time troublemaker. You know, in the 1800s, it's widely accepted that carbohydrates were fattening. Uh, in 1825, there was a book published uh, which blamed what was at the time a relatively new problem, obesity, uh, and it blamed it on starches and flours and sugars. Uh, and then, you know, less than 20 years after that, uh, there was another claim that every case of obesity could be cured with a diet consisting primarily of meat. Uh, William Banting is really considered the father of the low-carb diet, uh, which is, you know, like I said, it's kind of the new old thing, uh, but he popu- popularized weight loss via limiting carbs and sugars in the 1800s. He was someone that struggled with obesity throughout his life. He tried everything to lose the weight. Nothing worked. Maybe you've heard a story similar to this. Uh, and he came across this Dr. William Harvey, who was an ENT, uh, and, and Dr. Harvey was researching the effects of sugars and starches. Uh, and so William Banting consulted with Dr. Harvey, and Harvey told him, he said, hey, try eliminating sugars, bread, and potatoes. Uh, and he told Banting to focus on eating large amounts of meat. Guess what? Banting finally lost the weight. So I think it's funny. We tend to think of medicine as primitive in the 19th century, and in many ways it was. But I think what they lacked in science during this time, they seemed to you know, compensate with simple common sense, observation, and, and experience. Uh, so with the rise of processed and refined carbs, the three sugar waves, misaligned industry motives, you know, the su- success of these low carb diets were largely forgotten in the 20th century. And of course we replaced them with the new diet recommendations that we've been suffering with. Uh, so in 1992, the USDA released the de facto healthy diet in the form of the food pyramid, uh, and, uh, and the base of the pyramid, you know, the foundation upon which a healthy diet is built. 
uh, the USDA determined that that was grains, where they recommended a staggering 6 to 11 servings a day. And I think the results of these recommendations are quite clear. So that's it on carbs. I want to talk about my carbohydrate experiments. So based on everything I've just talked about, you're probably wondering like why I'd even consider experimenting with carbs. And I think that's a valid question. Uh, but here's why I did. So I received so many questions about carbohydrates and the carnivore diet that I wanted to be able to speak from personal experience, not just theory. Okay. Quite frankly, I'm genuinely, I was genuinely curious what would happen with these experiments. You know, after years of not eating any carbs, any fiber, what would happen if I ate, you know, a jar of honey or what happened if I ate a couple avocado and a two pints of blueberries? Uh, and then finally, I think there is a case of carbs, which I'm going to get to here in a minute. Okay. So after years of eating only meat, Without a single deviation, not one plant, so basically zero carbohydrates, no fiber, I ran the following experiments. Experiment number one was with honey. Uh, so I wondered, what would happen if I ate a jar of honey after not eating carbs for years? Remember, would I feel terrible? Would cravings return? Or would my muscles fill out and my, my training skyrocket? So I first experimented with raw organic honey as a way to test the effects of a quote-unquote pure carbohydrate without much of the other negative things in plants like the phytotoxins and anti-nutrients. Uh, so I considered running this experiment with a pure carbohydrate source like dextrose uh, or you know glucose, uh, but I, I wanted to experiment with real food sources and not a supplemental form. So another reason I chose to test with honey is that uh, I run a group, a Facebook group called Meat Health. You know, it's, it's a meat-based nutrition Facebook group. And really, it is like, it is the most awesome group. Everyone is very civil. People are just there to help people. Uh, however, every time honey gets brought up, it literally breaks out into civil war in the group. So I wanted to see what all the rage was about. And so my first experiment was with honey. So this was an experiment design. One jar of raw organic honey, which was going to equate to 100 grams of uh, 100 grams a day, which is about five tablespoons, four straight days. I was going to take 50 grams pre-workout, 50 grams post-workout. Okay, so here's the results. And I had some preconceived expectations with this experiment. So I have done various forms of carb cycling over the last 20 years, and I and from this I have a good feel for how carbs impact the body when reintroduced after a period of restriction. Uh, so I thought it was likely that my hunger would go through the roof when I, you know, when I tasted honey. Uh, you know, I didn't think my weight would change very much. If anything, maybe a slight increase from holding a bit more water from glycogen supercompensation. Uh, I thought maybe I'd see a slight intake in short-term energy, maybe a slightly better pump in the gym. And I thought maybe I'd experience an energy crash and some brain fog coming down from the sugar high. But it turns out I was pretty much wrong about everything. Not everything, but but a lot. So I didn't experience any increase in hunger or cravings. I did not gain any weight, and so I was I was kind of right about that. I did not have an uptick in energy. I did not have a better pump in the gym. I did not have an energy crash. So talk about the most boring experiment ever, right? But I I, I think this is fascinating. So after years of not eating carbs or sugars, I feel like I finally slayed the carb sugar addiction. So when I brought them back in, it was no big deal. So in the past, when I had used carbohydrate cycling on the high carb days, I always had this massive uptick in hunger uh, and cravings. And I usually had an uptick in energy and mood as well on these days. I didn't experience any of this during this week of the honey experiment, nor the subsequent, subsequent weeks in which I went back to just eating meat. So just as an interesting, from the years of eating just meat, it seems my muscles fully adapted to maximize uh, glycogen storage. 
uh, without the need for carbs. Thus, I didn't experience any increase in weight uh, from water retention. I didn't get a better pump in the gym, etc. Again, back when I used carb cycling, so like after three to four days without carbs, I would start to flatten out. Like my muscle bellies would not be as full as glycogen. Then on like the carb refeed days, they would re- they would fill back up. And during this experiment, I did not notice any increase in muscle fullness, nor the subsequent week did muscle seem to flatten out. And I know this is kind of subjective, but when you have spent so much time, you know, like getting in tune with the body and how food affects it, like uh, I think quite relevant. And based on this experiment, it brought up a whole, uh, you know, it brought up a lot more questions. Like, how long could I continue this carb intake and be able to maintain this metabolic flexibility? How long until addictions and cravings return? Is there a safe amount of sugar carbs that I could consume to stay metabolically flexible to keep addiction at bay and, you know, feel great in the presence or absence of carbs? How many carbs for how long would then require me to readapt to carnivore, to re-kill addictions? So, my intuition tells me that if I were to keep eating 100 grams of carbs a day from honey, a sugar addiction would develop in pretty short order. I think I would lose a degree of metabolic flexibility where my muscles would flatten out uh, without the consumption of carbs. But I don't think necessarily this is all or nothing. So for example, let's say I wasn't eating 100 grams of honey a day, but rather every other day or just once a week. Or what if one week I had carbs and then the rest of the month I didn't? Or what if I had carbs in the summer seasonally uh, and then not in the winter? Perhaps more closely imitating what a, like a, an ancestral pattern might look like. Uh, you know, there's an infinite number of scenarios I could devise. And while I probably will never have definitive answers to these questions, I do think they're worth asking. So experiment number two was, was with fiber, with blueberries and avocado. So I wondered... What would happen if I ate blueberries and avocado after not eating any for years? Had my microbiome morphed, would it be overwhelmed and unable to handle the fiber? Would I bloat, vomit, or explode? So my next experiment was with fiber. And I've written about fiber in more detail on another blog post, which I'm not going to go into all that here. Uh, I'll just leave it there. If you want to check out more about fiber, check out that blog post. But I conducted this experiment after the honey experiment, but before diving into this one, I went back to a pure meat-only diet for a couple weeks to reset my meat-based baseline. Um, And like the honey experiment, I wanted to test the effects of fiber via food, not supplements. So I, I chose two carb sources low sugar fruits that, uh, I think are the, you know, close to the best options when having to eat plants, plant-based foods. So this was the experiment design day one. I ate blueberries, one pint in the AM, one pint in the PM post-workout, which is about 20 grams of fiber. Day two was avocado. I ate one avocado in the morning, one avocado in the evening, about 20 grams of fiber. So 40 grams of fiber over two days. As far as the results, I had no idea what to expect from this fiber experiment. I thought perhaps I'd have some bloating and some GI distress. I mean, my microbiome is different after years without fiber, but how different and what the differences uh, would mean, I really wasn't sure. So, you know, after the blueberries, after the avocados, after the 40 grams of fiber, guess what? I felt just fine. I had no stomach issues, no bowel changes, no bloating, nothing out of the ordinary. And I was like, what does this mean? Well, I can hypothesize that in the long-term absence of fiber, the changes in the gut aren't so drastic that you can't return to eating fiber. My microbiome seemed to handle the fiber just fine. And while I know a lot of people fear the consequences of irreversible microbiome shifts that could occur from the removal of fiber over a long period of time, for me, that really is unfounded. So let's get into experiment number three, which was more than a cheat day. It was actually a cheat weekend. Uh, So I wondered what would happen uh, 
if I just ate kind of a st- standard American diet, so to speak. So after the fiber experiment, I returned to an all-meat diet for another couple of weeks before what I call the big test, which was a weekend trip. And during these two days, I decided I was just going to eat whatever my girlfriend ate for the most part uh, and see what happens. So day one during this trip, uh, the first test happened on the train ride from St. Louis to Chicago. I ate some trail mix on the train. I also drank some of my girlfriend's coffee that she sweetens with an artificial sweetener. Uh, when we got when we got there, I ate a shrimp salad for lunch. For dinner, I had some chicken and rice. Uh, and then to top off the day, I had a spoonful of my girlfriend's ice cream. I was not daring enough to order my own yet, so I just had a spoonful. I didn't push the envelope too much on day one. I mean, I had meat with every meal, and then I threw in the you know the the sides and snacks. But one thing stuck out like a sore thumb, and that was the sweetness sensitivity. So my girlfriend's coffee had, you know, it tasted terrible to me and it was the sweetener. And I know I used to love artificial sweeteners, you know, free calories, right? Uh, But one sip of her coffee and all I could taste was the terrible aftertaste. Uh, In the past, I never noticed this or if I had, I I didn't mind it. In fact, I probably liked it. Uh, But it seems like my taste buds have gotten far more sensitive to sweetness. And this caught me off guard on the train, but you know, it doesn't surprise me. Our taste buds would have never encountered the level of fake sweetness in these sugar packets. And I think a neat thing happens when you eliminate sugars and carbs and stop bombarding your taste buds with sweetness. Guess what? They They can regain their normal sensitivity. And I think this is an analogy that can be extrapolated to other areas of health. Because, I mean, think about it. Diabetes manifests when cells lose their sensitivity to insulin. I think we lose sensitivity to certain foods that we deem are quote-unquote okay, yet really are negatively impacting our digestion. They're causing inflammation and adversely affecting our health. But we've lost sensitivity to many of the cues. So by long-term removal of carbs and plant-based foods, I think people can regain sensitivity and get more in tune with their bodies. Uh, it becomes easier and more clear to determine which foods make you feel good and which cause problems. Now let's talk about the ice cream. Uh, because while I didn't care for the greens or the rice, they didn't seem to cause any major immediate problems. But the ice cream, it was phenomenal. I mean, in the past, if I tasted something like this, I would need to eat a half gallon of it. Uh, but I had a spoonful of my girlfriend's and I was satisfied. It was enough. So my psychology and relationship to food has undoubtedly changed. Changed. I can eat a treat and I don't need it. And if I've tasted it, I can feel, you know, that's enough without needing to devour an entire curtain. I mean, anyone that knows me knows that isn't me. Like I'm the all or nothing guy. If I'm eating ice cream, I'm eating all of it. Uh, I think one of the most underrated benefits of the carnivore diet is the psychological change so many people experience. It fixes our relationship with food. So where most diets fail is that this relationship with food never gets repaired. Addictions persist, hunger and cravings end up winning out over willpower. Uh, But when you no longer have to exert willpower to eat right, you can finally win this battle. Okay, let's talk about day two. So on day two, I ordered bacon and eggs for breakfast. I was on vacation, and the last thing I wanted to do was ruin my day by, you know, eating something like biscuits and gravy that could just wreck me the rest of the day. Uh, So I had a pretty standard keto breakfast there. Uh, For lunch, uh, we opted for the healthy option, healthy quote-unquote, steak and rice veggies. And if you've ever ordered one of these, I'm I'm sure you know. Like, the serving, serving size of steak leaves much to be desired. I'm accustomed to eating closer to two pounds of meat in a meal than two ounces. I mean, a few thin strips of steak just doesn't cut it for me. Uh, So as is typical with these meals and the standard American diet in general, you know, I was hungry in a couple hours after lunch. 
but I held off till dinner, which dinner was the biggest test. It was my brother's birthday and we took him out to an Italian restaurant. Uh, and the meal was mostly meat. I mean, we ordered meat on meat on meat. Uh, but, you know, it had spices and seasoning and sauces, as you would expect. And I noticed it in my de- digestion, undoubtedly. You know, I was burping, bloating, just not feeling great. Uh, it wasn't dramatic, but when you know what good digestion feels like, it is easy to know when it doesn't feel right. Uh, and again, I think this is just an example of having a much higher intuitive sense of feeling, tasting, knowing when things are right and wrong. Uh, because like, if you've been on the right track for so long and you deviate a little bit, it's easy to notice. But if deviation is the norm, it takes a wild deviation to notice. So I want to mention a few further thoughts on these experiments. Uh, because these tested some acute responses to food after long-term absence, but they didn't really say much about you know the long-term chronic exposure to these foods. And it's really important to note uh, I wrote an article on false positives and false negatives. It's on it's on the website Meat Meat Health. It's M E A T dot Health, uh, where that article is posted. Uh, but false positives and false negatives can completely skew results uh, of simple n equal one experiments like this, and you know really lead to improper interpretation of the results. So you know if you're going to do an experiment like this, please 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 read that article so you you have the right mindset going into them. Uh, so since these initial tests, I have experimented with a few other quote-unquote targeted carnivore experiments where I cycled in some carbohydrates, plant-based foods, uh, and I've tried adding carbs in various ways. For example, I've tried different carb timing. I tried carbs post-workout. I tried carbs pre-workout. I tried them you know, in the morning versus the evening. I tried various carb intervals like I had every other day, every third day, every fourth day. I tried having carbs back-to-back day and then no carbs for numerous days. And I've also tried various carb sources, white rice, potatoes, squash, berries, things like that. Uh, And what I've noticed from these experiments is that some carb timing, some carb amounts, and some sources are better or worse than others. And it depends on so many factors. But one thing that really was consistent is that there was no consistency. Like for me, it's, it's it's been hard to draw conclusions besides the fact that carbs complicate things. They don't seem to improve much of anything uh, with the caveat for the case for carbs I'm going to talk about below. Uh, but uh, they have a negative impact to varying degrees. So just to summarize some of the learnings from these experiments. Uh, and the long-term zero carb, zero fiber, zero plant-based food, uh, because it's evident that adequate carb restriction can kill carbohydrate cravings and sugar addictions. You know, it can restore a healthy relationship to food. Uh, it can resensitize taste buds. It can enhance dietary intuition, and it can just overall make you feel great, both mentally and physically. Without a doubt, people have different abilities to handle plant-based foods and carbs. The poison is likely in the dose and the duration based on one's individual you know, tolerance ability. One last note on these experiments, and that's on blood glucose. I didn't wear a blood glucose monitor during these experiments. You know, Besides being expensive and a bit tedious, uh, I'm not sure how meaningful the results would be anyways because I'm fairly confident I would have seen high postprandial blood glucose. And there's there's research on there's some research on long-term carb-restricted diets and reintroduction of carbohydrates. And people who have undergone such experiments generally see you know post-meal hyperglycemia, high blood sugar spikes uh, when they reintroduce carbs. And a couple things can cause this. Uh, for one, is when you're on of just a meat-based diet for a very long time, as you know my my uh, uh, blood work is demonstrates. Uh, 
which I, I also have that in a, in a blog post if you want to check out my blood work. Uh, but my insulin has been super low for a very long period of time. Uh, so in a, in, in a respect, my body doesn't expect to need a lot of insulin at any one time, as is needed with a high-carbohydrate meal. So when I reintroduce carbs, the body get you know caught off guard, so to speak, and the amount of insulin released is less than needed, which results in higher blood sugar levels. And then the second thing is, on long-term low-carb, no-carb diets, the body can develop a degree of glucose-sparing insulin resistance in the muscles. And what this means is the muscle cells adapt to using the higher levels of circulating fatty acids for energy, and they block insulin so as to save glucose for the central nervous system. It's like the exact opposite of typical insulin resistance seen in diabetics. So in a sense, the body needs to get carb adapted, just like the body had to get fat adapted. Fat adaption can take weeks, and it's one of the reason, and and one reason is that the muscle shifts from ketone use and more towards fatty acids for fuel, thereby sparing glucose and ketones for the central nervous system. Uh, so bottom line, I don't think it's smart to eat a lot of carbs ever, but if going from a near, near zero carbohydrate diet and reintroducing carbs, I'd recommend taking it slow as to limit these hyperglycemia events. Uh, and if you conduct any experiments like this, I'd also recommend introducing carbs post-workout, uh, which can help promote glucose uptake in the muscle uh, via a process called enhanced non-insulin-mediated glucose uptake, which you don't really need to know, but you know that's how it works. All right, so last uh, section here is the case for carbohydrates. <clears throat> so I think the most important benefit of the carnivore diet is getting healthy. And that is a very vague statement, but I'm gonna explain here. Uh, because this doesn't just mean healing an underlying issue like an autoimmune, dis autoimmune dis uh, disease or getting a better body, both of which can certainly be a part of getting healthy. But I think it also encompasses developing a healthy relationship with food upon which long-term success can be built. If you're hungry, if you're malnourished, if you're always fighting against cravings, you've already lost. We know that through the research. But if you can get nourished, get satiated, get satisfied, if you can fix this relationship with food, the hardest part of the battle is won. Uh, so my recommendation is win this battle first. Uh, and then once this battle is won, and it can take three months, more likely six months to 12 months if you're already healthy. If you're not healthy, it could take one to three years. You know, it, you know, the metabolic damage has happened over decades for many people. And so expecting to reverse this in, you know, a week is just, you know, it's not realistic. So you got to go in there with the right mindset. Uh, and if you are, if you are, if you're not doing this, uh, you know, a meat-based diet right now and you're thinking about it, I'm just going to tell you one place I would start is on meat health. There's a 30 day guide, also a 30 day, the same thing is posted on my website. It's, it's actually a 90 day guide, uh, but that will help you not only transition into the diet, uh, but also give you the right mental framework for thinking about the diet. Okay. But let's say you won this battle. Okay. And fast forward, maybe you've been on carnivore diet for two years, uh, maybe longer. Uh, anyways, and you want to know about carbs and uh, I want to talk here about the four potential cases for including carbohydrates in the diet. So the first case is unique individual goals and this can encompass things like body composition, you know, athletic performance, metabolic flexibility, things like that. The second case for carbs is genetics, which variable vari variability in carb and plant-based tolerance, uh, food tolerance. Uh, third case is adapting to the carnivore diet, in which we're gonna. Well, I'll talk about you know tiptoeing in versus diving in. 
Uh, and then the fourth thing is adhering to carnivore, which is which encompasses things like lifestyle, culture, and entertainment. So I'm going to tackle each one of these sections now. And the first one, uh, the first case for carbs is uh, in unique individual goals or performance goals. Uh, so beyond health, we eat for you know countless other reasons, such as to transform our bodies to look a certain way or to enjoy or to enjoy the taste of something new. And I think the first case case for carbs relates to an individual's unique goals related to performance and body composition. Uh, and this is a gigantic topic. I mean, it includes muscle building, it includes fat loss, it includes endurance, it includes strength, it includes sports. Uh, so if using carbs to supplement a body composition or performance goal, I recommend taking a deeper dive into other podcasts I've done. So for example, I did a podcast with the Strong Sisters, uh, the Armstrong Sisters, they're known as the Strong Sisters on social media, Ashley and Sarah Armstrong, uh, who use a carnivore diet uh, with some targeted carbs. Uh, so Ashley is more of a has more of a strength emphasis. Sarah is more of a bodybuilding uh, focus, uh, you know, focusing on hypertrophy and such. Of course, there's a tremendous amount of overlap between these two arenas. Uh, but if you have body composition goals, this podcast, you know, we dive into that. We also dive into a lot of other cool topics in that as well. Uh, I also have podcasts with Danny Vega uh, where uh, if you don't, if you don't know Danny, I mean, he carries a tremendous amount of muscle, uh, and he's mixed keto carnivore and some carbs to achieve just outstanding results with muscle building, fat burning, lifting outrageously, uh, heavy weights and performing at just an ultra high level. Uh, so I got a podcast out with Danny Vega to check out that one. Uh, if you're more interested in like endurance kind of stuff, I did a podcast with Zach Bitter, who is a world record holding ultra marathoner like he runs 100 100 mile races and wins them and sets world records uh i mean this he really is like he demonstrates the epitome of endurance sport and in this talk uh with this podcast i got a video and a podcast that you can uh watch uh he discusses how he uses mostly a meat-based carnivore diet that he supplements with some carbs and you know he uses this to set records in 100 mile races so if endurance is more focused i check out that uh besides you know, diving into these, I'll talk a little bit about my personal experiments. I mean, I have, uh, you know, how to lose fat on the carnivore diet. It's a, you know, ebook download you can check out, which how I would use a carnivore diet for fat loss. I also have a muscle building, how to use a carnivore diet for muscle building. Uh, if you want to go into, you know, kind of my, my personal approaches to those things. Uh, but I just want to quickly mention here, Based on you know decades of personal experiments as well as that of others, like a whole lot of research, as well as just intuition that results from all this, I think intelligent use of the right carbs at the right times for the right person can help optimize for certain body composition and performance goals. Now, that statement was incredibly vague on purpose. Like everyone has a different history. My workout history is very different than yours. Uh, everyone has different goals. My goals are different than yours. Different personalities, different desires, and on and on and on. And all you know this this is where a tailored approach is 100% needed uh and without you know I, I can't tell you what's best for you uh unless I know you know so much about your total history what you want you know it goes on and on and on and on so basically I want to mention this with just a gigantic caveat that the wrong carb sources the wrong amounts the wrong timing uh can do more harm than good both with health and the objective sought to achieve so in many cases, I think 
Even if body composition or performance goal performance goals are a top priority, if you keep health as the number one priority, uh, this is going to help optimize your long-term success in these other areas as well. So like my personal recommendation is build your body and performance goals on a meat-based foundation. Okay, let's talk about genetics. So while humans are far more genetically alike than we are different compared to other intraspecies genetic differences, uh, there are differences to take into account, of course. Like some people do have higher carb tolerances than other. You know, in Southeast Asia, there's a continent of people who consumed a lot of white rice and had low levels of obesity and diabetes until, like everyone else, they started eating a more Western diet. Uh, some people can detox certain phytotoxins better than others. The poison is in the dose and duration, like I mentioned, and you know some can tolerate small doses of poisons and be fine while others get harmed by even minuscule doses so if you're going to eat carbs i think it's wise to figure out which ones you tolerate best uh and go from there so let's talk about adapting to carnivore so i've written extensively on how to adapt to the carnivore diet especially in the 30-day guide uh that which again you can pick up at meat health meat.health uh for most people i think removing carbohydrates from the start is the best way to go it's like jumping into a pool uh there's like this initial shock where it can be uncomfortable, but you get in and you get acclimated very quickly. So slowly cutting out plant-based foods and carbohydrates can be a lot like tipping toeing into a tiptoeing into a cold pool. It can prolong the agony, can draw out adaptation symptoms, and cause people to just turn around and forget about getting into the pool altogether. Uh, however, there are some people where the initial shock is too much, the water is too cold, and it takes too long to get comfortable in the temperature. Uh, and so, well, I'm pretty sure, and I, you know, this is the exception, not the rule. Some people do benefit by slowly weaning off carbohydrates. Uh, so by leaving in some fiber and carbohydrates, adaptation symptoms can be lessened. Uh, I've seen it, uh, it help people who initially struggled with their sleep or who struggled with bowel issues, uh, energy issues, like all these are common early on, uh, but some people they experienced them to such a degree that you know the only option was weaning off them and once weaned off they 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 were able to find success after that so if you happen to fall into this camp what i would do this is this is how i'd approach it uh, i would keep a small amount of carb uh, carbohydrates or fi- and or fiber foods such as low sugar fruits like avocado or blueberries or maybe a sweet potato peeled and pressure cooked uh, with each meal then i'd slowly reduce the amount per meal uh, and eliminate them from some meals altogether. Then maybe go one full day without any carbs or fiber. Then the next day include some, then two days without it, and then uh, two days without carbs, fiber, then include some, et cetera, et cetera. You get the picture. Uh, and like I said, this can be like pulling off a Band-Aid, but for some people, this is the only way they can manage. Now, of course, there are serious downsides to this approach. Beyond delaying adaptation, prolonging symptoms, slowly tiptoeing into the water can, you know, keep cravings around. It could take longer to fix the relationship to food. Relapse becomes a big concern. So I don't recommend this approach for most people. Uh, And I I reserve it for like really those who just can't deal with the shock of jumping straight into the cold deep end. Okay, talk about adhering to carnivore. Uh, So flexibility in one person's diet is another person's relapse. Long-term success with a healthy way of eating requires self-awareness. For some people, they know that one cookie turns into 10. It's easier to say no to all cookies. A flexible diet is a recipe for, you know, relapse into old habits, cravings, and carbs. This is kind of how I am with alcohol. Like the opportunity to drink arises every single week. It's easier for me to say I don't drink, you know, both to myself and to others than it is to say, you know, I'm not drinking tonight. Like for me, 100% is easier than 98% in this case. 
like because with the former i don't drink no decision has to be made it's already made like no willpower is required there isn't any temptation again 100 percent is easier than 98 percent because with the latter i'm not drinking tonight it leaves the situation open-ended it leaves the possibility that i could say yes i'll have a drink and thus it requires energy to make the quote-unquote right decision you know it requires willpower and personally i'd rather save that willpower for other decisions then, of course, on the flip side, there are many, many people who can stick to a healthy way of eating as long as they have wiggle room. Like the flexibility to have the, an occasional drink or dessert makes it easy to adhere the other 95% of the time. For these people, 95% is easier, easier than 100%. People often tell me that as long as they can have some chocolate after dinner, they can stick to a meat-based diet. However, if they aren't allowed that chocolate, they would rather just stick with the you know, standard American diet. Uh, but you know kind of my point of view is if deviating is scheduled in then it really isn't deviating and if five percent flexibility allows for 95 plus percent on target to me that's a success uh it's important to note like life happens and if deviations are expected and you know even factored in it helps many people from throwing the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak you know one slip up doesn't derail the train so by factoring in life they have much higher degrees of long-term success um, I think this also closely ties in with eating in a way that fits your lifestyle. Like we live in cultures that are dominated by carbohydrates. There are very few meat-based societies anymore. I mean, carbohydrate-based foods play a role in our lifestyles, cultures, and just really society at large. You know, food takes the form of entertainment and pleasure. We don't just eat to survive, but like to fulfill other aspects of our lives. So for this reason, I think people need to define carnivore diet for themselves. So should everyone be on the carnivore diet and i do think the majority of people should be on the carnivore diet with the caveat everyone needs to define their own version you know in the podcast i did with the strong sisters that i mentioned earlier uh, i asked them about various carnivore diet frameworks like there's a flexible carnivore diet there's a keto carnivore there's a targeted carnivore there's a caveman carnivore i mean there's a plethora of these carnivore diet der derivations uh and who should follow which kind and you know what is right uh, and I, I asked them their opinion, and they gave just such a perfect answer. Uh, they said, you should follow the insert your name carnivore diet. Uh, and I think what they mean is that everyone should tailor the carnivore diet to their unique life goals and personality. You know, I often see people get their identity wrapped up with a diet. Uh, and by all means, this can be a good thing. Like if someone identifies as a quote unquote carnivore, they're much more likely to stick with it because they attach their identity to it. But it can also be a bad thing because if someone attacks the diet that you identify with, you know, you take it as a personal attack. And, you know, as an example of this is I saw Dr. Sean Baker, who, you know, is a friend of mine and probably one of the biggest advocates for the carnivore diet. You know, I saw him get criticized for eating. He, and, you know, he was talking about, you know, he ate a piece of cake at his son's birthday party. And then people went online, of course, and said, you know, oh, he's just meat based. He's not carnivore. Uh, and to me, this just turns into like cult-like dogma. It's, it's, you know, it's why I like to use the term meat-based anyways instead of carnivore. Uh, you know, meat-based is vague. It's broad, yet it, I think is understandable. And that's why I like it. Uh, you know, if I were to try and define it, I would say that it means getting the vast majority of your food from animal source nutrition. You know, meat is the foundation of every meal. And meat includes muscle meat, organs, seafood, eggs, and, you know, even maybe even some dairy. 
I mean, the goal is not to follow a diet. That, that's what I'm getting at here. The goal is to eat healthy and maintain it over the course of your life. And I think success comes from thinking long-term lifestyle, not short-term diet. And to make a meat-based diet fit into your life and for the long term, you need to tailor it to your goals, to your lifestyle, to your desires, and even your genetic variability. And I think one of the best ways to achieve this is to understand the foundation, to understand carnivore meat-based diet, and to have your unique definition included on top of the fo- on top of the foundation. And while I think experimenting with your personal, you know, insert your name carnivore diet is important, what at this time I don't even think is worth experimenting with is the meat-based foundation. You know, personalize on top of the foundation. Leave the foundation in place if you dare, uh, or if you, you know, if you dare not to. Uh, it's not something I'm wor- I'm interested in experimenting with anymore. So let's talk a little bit about your carnivore diet. Uh, because if you're going to stray into including some carbs, whether on a regular basis or just occasionally, there's some things I think that are worth keeping in mind. So let's talk about regular carb inclusion. Uh, First, I would recommend rotating between at least a few different carb sources that you seem to tolerate the best. By rotating carb sources, you're going to get exposure to different phytotoxins in different amounts, uh, ideally in low enough doses that the body can handle them with no major problems. because really it's it's when you eat high doses like eating the same plant-based food day after day meal after meal that's when insidious problems can arise so for example if you like potatoes and you seem to feel fine when you eat potatoes uh unless you include them every day you may not realize the negative cumulative impact of the alkaloids or if you eat berries every day you could be oblivious to the oxalates that build up over time that's why i recommend you know finding a few carb sources that you can rotate and you know my personal opinion is that the low sugar fruits tend to be uh you know the best options for those there can be other options i'll get to so you know i think there are substantial risks to including carbs on a regular basis i mean for me it's taken years to regain taste sensitivity to kill carb addictions to regain amazing brain function and just you know feel great uh and it does put some of this at risk you know, like I said, the dose, the frequency, and the duration can all impact the potential problems or relative okayness of various carbs. So what kind of carbs? Well, like I said, carbohydrates complicate things. Uh, in my carb experiments, I chose to test with sweet potatoes uh, one time and or a couple times. And even though I carefully picked these, I aggressively peeled them and I pressure cooked them. Uh, they still came with problems. For example, when I was eating just meat, I never have body odor. And this is not just, you know, me that experiences that. That's actually a pretty common symptom uh, of eating just meat. But after eating a sweet potato, I do every time. Uh, And, you know, it it makes me raise my eyebrows a little bit, right? Uh, Also, more than once, within minutes of eating a pressure-cooked peeled sweet potato, I've gotten nauseous where, like, my stomach dropped and cramped. Uh, Yet other times I I ate them, I was just perfectly fine. So, you know, that's kind of the example of carbohydrates complicate things. Uh, I also experimented with uh, white rice. Uh, I had some pre-workout to see, you know, maybe it would, you know, see how it affects my energy and, you know, the pump. Uh, But guess what? The indigestion and burping ruined the workout. So even if these carbs had some tiny benefit pre-workout in theory, uh, the negative impact for how I felt greatly outweighed any potential impact, good positive impact it might have had. But on the flip side, white rice is one of the only carb sources that I've experimented with that I feel consistently okay with most of the time. Uh, 
not so good pre-workout on that example but uh most of the time if i had when i've tried white rice i've been fine uh you know so that's you know as far as grains my two for me personally my low sugar fruits like an avocado or some berries and white rice are like the only things that i have consistently felt okay with okay so i mentioned this because if you decide to include carbs on an ongoing basis like some form of targeted carnivore for example uh it does complicate things and it can definitely have negative consequences so just some things to keep in mind now i recommend proper preparation of plant-based foods if you're going to eat them uh, most of plant-based foods can be made safer by using appropriate cooking methods. And if you want to know more about this, it's it's in the Health Dangers of a Plant-Based Diet ebook, where I discuss these phytotoxins and various cooking me- methods to help neutralize these toxins. Uh, but just kind of as an over, like a broad overview, uh, the most common ways to limit the downside of many of these plant-based foods include peeling, like potatoes, peeling them, pressure cooking, or high temperature. Uh, boiling, draining the water off, soaking, fermenting, allowing fruits to fully ripen, uh, as well as choosing local, organic, fresh, non-GMO, seasonal fruits and vegetables. I mean, this that goes a long way as well. So choose wisely. All right, this has been long. Let's get to conclusions of, about carbohydrates. And like I said, like this got to be way longer than I intended. Uh, like I said, it was like nearly 15,000 words, which is a small book. But I didn't cut it down substantially because... I think a solid understanding of carbohydrates, you know, throughout history, its impact on health and its place in one's diet and lifestyle is super important because this is the macronutrient that I think can cause, you know, I I know it's going to cause the most problems for people. And if you really get a grasp around carbohydrates, you know, you can, you can eliminate them to, you know, just, just tremendously improve your life, or you can use them strategically to, you know, supplement your life, complement your life. So, we know that modern humans, for the vast majority of our existence, ate a low-carbohydrate diet. It wasn't until the agricultural and industrial revolutions that carbs started infiltrating our diets in meaningful ways. And, you know, the three sugar waves greatly exacerbated this. Now, the majority of our energy is derived from carbs. Wheat, corn, rice, and sugar. These are the staple ingredients of the human diet. And we know sugar, and thus carbs, are addicting. We know carbohydrates are a non-essential nutrient. It's clear that simple sugars, fructose, and refined carbohydrates dysregulate our hormones and appetites. They lead to overeating and obesity, lead to insulin resistance and diabetes, are implicit in the most deadly diseases today, including heart disease, cancer, and dementia. Uh, I've talked a lot about my carnivore experiments over the past several years, but it's worth mentioning that I've done about 20 years of diet experiments, experiments, most of which manipulate carbohydrate consumption in various ways. As I've mentioned in this article, there are still things I'm interested in testing, still things I need to learn, uh, but without a doubt, I can attest to one conclusive statement. The foundation of a healthy human diet is animal-based nutrition. While we all differ to varying degrees with our goals, genetics, lifestyles, and cultures, we have more in common than we do differences. As a single human species, we are designed to eat a similar diet, and that is a meat-based diet. On top of this foundation, we do have individual differences, whether it be muscle building and fat burning goals, some variability in genetics and ability to tolerate certain plant-based foods better than others, and different lifestyles and cultures. But I think these differences, these cases for carbs, exist on top of the meat-based foundation. They don't replace the foundation. Over the last several years, I've been asked countless times, is it okay to eat 
cake at my kid's birthday party? Is it okay to have a glass of wine with my significant other on our anniversary? Is it okay to eat carbs post-workout? Is it okay to include an avocado as a snack? And really, I hope this article helped answer these questions because what I think is at the heart of these questions is how can I make a healthy meat-based diet, carnivore diet work in my life? And by understanding the foundation and adopting a framework, i.e. creating your own, it is possible to tailor the carnivore diet to fit your life and goals. You need to find what works for you. I know I feel my absolute best when I'm not eating carbs, when I'm eating just fatty meat without measuring or monitoring. When I deviate from this foundation, whether it be with targeted carnivore or a piece of cake at a birthday party, it's a toss-up if I'll feel fine or terrible or somewhere in between. If there's an overarching take-home message, it's that meat is the foundation. Carbs, at most, should be a supplement to this foundation to fit your life and goals. Some people can tolerate some plant-based foods better than others, and I think the best way to find out what works best for you is to first build a solid meat-based foundation. Get healthy first, which that means that relationship with food. Uh, And when you win that first battle, when you get healthy and you build that solid foundation, uh, things not only does life get much better, but diet gets much easier to understand from there. So I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this. I know it was long. I read, spoke quite quickly. uh, So hopefully not too quickly. Uh, And I also want to mention I am writing uh, two other parts in this macronutrient series, which is what it's going to be. So this is obviously the carbohydrate part. I'm going to write about proteins and fats as well. Uh, and if it's not already released, uh, depending on when you're listening to this, just subscribe to my Saturday 7 newsletter uh, on my website, kevinstock.io, and you will get it when it's ready. If they are already released, I'm sure you can download them on my website. Again, thanks for listening, and I will talk with you soon. Bye-bye. Keep the radio going. Dr. Kevin Stock has more coming your way. For exclusive content, visit www.kevinstock.io.